we are in the book of Matthew. More specifically, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have just talked about the Beatitudes, which describe the availability of the kingdom of God to those who are poor in spirit and who need God. And the Beatitudes, the second half, describe the character of a disciple. They are pure in heart, they are peacemakers, but they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. They will be persecuted for their belief in Christ. Last week we spoke about the purpose of the church to be salt and light in the world. Um, God created the church for a reason, and it is to spread his character out into the world and his message out into the world. Today, we will be talking about how Jesus relates to the Old Testament. What are we to do with that? We have two Testaments, an Old Testament and a New Testament and a Jesus in between them. How does this fit together? That's the question we're going to explore today. So if you read with me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, in the words of Jesus. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will become great in the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the ministry of Jesus must have brought amazement to people. It must have been a peculiar thing. This man is out healing, doing many mighty works. Droves of people are going out to him. Good catch, Khalil. Droves of people are going out to him. Um, and they're no longer seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees as the religious authority. It seems now that there's been a shift with Jesus of Nazareth. And so certainly there was amazement. We know even from secular sources that Jesus was called a sorcerer. Something peculiar about this man was happening. But with the amazement, there must have also come questions. Precisely what is he doing in the world? I mean, Jesus was clearly a devout man. But there was a definite difference in tone between his ministry and the ministry of the Jewish leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees, for example, would keep themselves ritually clean. They would, um, they would not associate with sinners. That would be to become unclean, to associate with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus is befriending sinners. 
He's eating with sinners in their homes, and he is calling these sinners to be his disciples. And while the Pharisees and the Sadducees would refrain from any work on the Sabbath, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. An amazing thing, but still it brings up questions about what is his relation to God's law. And rather than associate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus is condemning the religious authorities of the day. So what exactly is Jesus' relation to God's law, to the word of God? This must have been the question in the minds of many people in the first century. Was Jesus opposing the law and the prophets? Was his ministry different somehow than the law's, law and the prophets? Was he contradicting them? What is it that this man was doing precisely? This is very interesting because historically people have been very confused about this. There's a famous heretic called Marcion. Who has heard of Marcion? My wife. <laughs> Marcion was a heretic in the second century AD, and he taught that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament were completely different gods. Jesus' God was completely different than the God who gave the law in the Old Testament. Totally different. And so Marcion created his own canon of scripture that only had the Gospel of Luke and 10 letters of Paul as opposed to 13. And he cut out anything Jewish anything relating to the Old Covenant, Old Testament in his canon. Because clearly there's a difference, he said, between Jesus and the Old Testament God. This was what's, what's in his mind. And today we have the same kind of confusion. In fact, we have well-known preachers saying that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament because we're New Covenant Christians. <coughs> so what exactly is Jesus's relation to the Old Testament. How are we, as his disciples, supposed to understand Jesus and the Old Testament? Well, first of all, clearly, clearly there is something different about Christ's ministry. We're not living under the Old, old Covenant law. I'm not. I don't know if any of you are, but I sure am not living under the Old Covenant law. So how could we understand the Old Testament and its requirements in light of Christ? That's precisely what I'm aiming to explain today through this passage. How do we understand the Old Testament and its requirements in light of Jesus Christ? There are three headings I just want to explain this text under. And it's Christ's view of Scripture, number one. Number two, Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. Number three, the righteousness Christ required. So first of all, Christ's view of Scripture. For many people, the, the New Testament's easy to believe in. I mean, the New Testament was written by people who knew and saw Jesus Christ, Right? The New Testament is written by apostles and those who are associated with apostles. There are no other books. There are no other books 
There are some books that claim to be written by apostles and have been proven to be pseudepigraphal, mistaken, wrong. But there are no other books that are written by the apostles. These are them. The ones we have, these are them. They're the ones that we have from the people who knew Jesus Christ. And the other books in the New Testament not written by apostles were either closely associated with Jesus as brothers are closely associated with the apostles like Luke. So, the New Testament's easy to believe in, but what about the Old Testament? Why do we believe, as New Covenant Christians, why do we believe the Old Testament? We're not Jewish. This isn't 1000 BC. Precisely why do we believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God? Answer. We believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God because Christ believed and taught that it was. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. An iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. A dot refers to the accent mark on Hebrew words, just a little jot. And so Jesus is saying, not even a comma, not even an accent mark is going to pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. That's a pretty high view of the Old Testament. When tempted by Satan, few weeks ago, when tempted by Satan, Jesus answered Satan. How did he answer Satan? He said, it is written. It is written. And then he quotes passages from Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a high view. And it's not as if Christ is accommodating himself to his Jewish audience, as some have said. What he says is far too extreme for that in relation to the Old Testament. He says things like, Scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. He says things like, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away for one dot of the law to become void. To the Sadducees, he said, you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. That's a high view. So the reason we believe the Old Testament, the reason I believe the Old Testament is the authoritative word of God is because Christ taught and believed that it was. And part of discipleship is adopting the worldview of Jesus Christ. So we we don't just believe in Jesus Christ, we're also his disciples, and that's important to understand. And he shapes our view of reality. He shapes it. And so his view of the scriptures, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is our view. And that, that that is a solid basis for understanding why we believe the Old Testament and the New Testament is the inspired Word of God, because it begins and ends with Jesus, right? It begins and ends with Jesus. 
Jesus is the, is the reason. I, I taught more about this in a series called The Logic of Christianity about a year and a half ago. You were invited to look that up online. There's even an article on our website um, giving some more about this. I'd love to tarry on this point because I'm passionate about it. But the basis for our belief in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not just because we find ourselves believing these Jewish texts. It's Christ. Christ is the basis. All right, I must move on. That's Christ in the Scripture. Christ fulfills the Old Testament is the next point. Verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. (laughs) Christ begins this section by clarifying what he's not come to do. I've not come to do something. The law and the prophets, by the way, is the whole Old Testament. That was a way of referring to everything in the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, everything. Um, Later, it became the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, or the law, the writings, and the prophets. But the law and the prophets was an early way to refer to everything in the Old Testament. So what has he come to do? Well, he's not come to abolish them. He's not come to eradicate the Old Testament. He's not come to lay it aside as if it's worthless. He's not come to simply exchange it for something utterly different. So he's not come to abolish it. Notice what else he doesn't say. He says, he he didn't say, I have come to keep them. He didn't say, I've come to keep them, as if his, his main aim was to teach and maintain the Old Testament law. He's not come to abolish them. He's not come to keep them. He said something far more radical than that. He has come to fulfill them. Come to fulfill. The Greek word fulfill is plerao, and it simply means to complete, to fill up, uh, to bring something to its goal. And so Jesus claimed to be the one bringing the Old Testament to its intended goal. That's Jesus' claim. The law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, the prophecies, all pointed to Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, is the story that Christ completes. That's what it is. And he has come to fulfill them, to fill it up. Let me just read you some places where Jesus makes this utterly explicit. To those on the road to Emmaus, he said, um, this is Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is after his resurrection. He meets two men on on the road to Emmaus who said, oh, we wish this Christ would have been the Messiah. We had great hopes in him, you know, but he was crucified. And so we know Messiahs aren't crucified. And Jesus comes up beside them. And he says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses 
and all the prophets. He imparted to them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you understand that? Jesus took the law of Moses. I wish I would have been there for that sermon. It would have been much better than the one I'm preaching right now. He took the law of Moses and the prophets and Jesus interpreted to them, in them, all the things concerning himself. Do you see the claim? That Jesus is claiming to be the one that the Old Testament law and the prophets were talking about all along. A few verses later, he says to his disciples, he came to his disciples resurrected. And they're in a room and he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me, he says. This is a radical statement. To this, one more verse, one more passage. He said to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is them that they that bear witness about me. <laughs> what? Surely C.S. Lewis was right when he said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. There's no, he did not, he did not claim, he did not claim to be a good liberal man just teaching Western values. He did not claim that. He claimed to be the one fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures, bringing them to completion, filling them up with their intended significance. So that's a radical thing to say. That's Jesus's claim. How, now, how, how does Jesus fill up the scriptures with greater significance? How do they point to him? The key word is typologically, typology. And the, the idea, that's just a fancy word theologians use to say that all these Old Testament events and institutions and sacrifices, they all prefigure and anticipate the greater realities of Jesus Christ. So let me give you an example. Christ is our Passover lamb. Amen? Paul says that. Christ is our Passover lamb. But Jesus obviously is not literally a lamb. He's not a farm animal. Um, and we don't physically smear his blood on our doorposts. I've been to some of your houses. I don't see that. And we don't actually eat him at a Passover meal physically, right? And there's no longer an actual angel of death flying over to see if the blood has been smeared on the doorposts. But, but, just as the lamb, the blood of the lamb ensured safety from judgment, 
so Christ's blood protects us from the wrath of God. And just like they ate the Passover lamb at the Passover meal, so in the Lord's Supper, we take the bread symbolizing his body, we take the cup symbolizing his blood, and we do this in remembrance of him. So you see what I mean by typologically. All these physical and literal events and institution point to a greater, much greater reality fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the new covenant reality which we currently live in right now as Christians. So Christ fills up, he fills up with greater meaning and significant the, the categories that the Old Testament creates. When my kids were younger, not so much now, but sometimes now, we, get the, we got them coloring books, coloring books. And there would be an outline, you know, some kind of frog or animal, and they would color it in. They would fill it up. They would fill it in. That's kind of what's in my mind, one analogy in my mind, when it comes to Christ and the Old Testament. The Old Testament creates the categories, the outline. Christ fills it in. He fills it up with great significance and meaning that it was intended to have. So if there's a requirement of the law, Christ keeps it. If there's a penalty, he takes it. If there is an institution or a promise, he fulfills it. And if there is a teaching, he gets to the heart of it. So Christ did not claim to be abolishing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, nor did he claim to be merely teaching them. He came to fulfill them. So understand this, brothers and sisters, that Christianity is rooted in the claims of Christ. This is why we're Christian, because Christ made claims about himself. Here's what John Stott said in um, a book he wrote. He says, The self-centeredness of the teaching of Christ, of Jesus, immediately sets him apart from other great religious leaders of the world. They tend to be self-effacing. Christ is self-advancing. They say, this is the truth. Follow it. Jesus says, I am the truth. Follow me. You see that? Christ was not just claiming to be the one who understood things. He was the one to be understood. He is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. So all this... the. The Jewish people anticipated a, a resurrection of the dead on the last day when all of the dead saints would rise. Jesus said, I am that. The resurrection is me. And those united to me have that resurrection. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So Jesus is talking about himself. 
So please understand that, that Christianity is rooted in the claims of Christ. It's not because we just have leather-bound Bibles and we find ourselves believing it. They are rooted in the historical claims of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why do we believe those claims? Why are lunatic our Lord, right? Why do we believe them? Well, if it's true what the scriptures say, and if it's true the testimony of the apostles, and Jesus rose from the dead, it is the better part of wisdom to listen to him. Right? Someone rises from the dead, he's worth listening to. So the resurrection is what brings vindication to all his claims. Very interestingly, there's great, such good evidence for the resurrection. Oh, there's, I could give you books, I could give you debates, there's just such good evidence for the resurrection. But you know what Jesus said? Basically, you're going to believe that Christ rose from the dead for a, a few reasons, but ultimately, if you have ears to hear. You, Jesus said, if they won't listen to Moses, then neither will they, will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. That's very interesting. So it's not just about believing the facts, although the facts, I think, are a second source of warrant for believing the truths of Christianity that come up and support your true justified belief. But the real question is, do you have ears to hear? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will be, they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. So brothers, we need to pray. Sisters, we need to pray for people who we might be in conversation with. That God would open their mind to see and believe the truth. Because we can't, we can't make someone believe something, right? We can give them the testimony. But ultimately, have there, have, has God dug for them an open ear? The righteousness, the righteousness Christ requires. Now let me just back up for a second. Fulfillment. Still stay with fulfillment for a second. So when it comes to fulfillment, understand that Jesus Christ is bringing the Old Testament law and prophets to their intended goal. He is the fulfillment, and he will continue to do so, verse 18, until everything is accomplished. There's more to be accomplished. More to be accomplished. So he is, he is still bringing things, the Old Testament promises, to their completion. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So... Um, when it comes to the Old Testament, New Testament, what do we do with Christ in the middle? Well, as New Covenant Christians, we need to understand the Old Testament the way that Christ and the apostles understood the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament creates the categories, gives the promises, Christ fulfills them. He is the fulfillment. This gets into, this gets into different types of theologies, but for me, and you can write me off, but for me, the way I feel, think about this through my Bible reading is that um, Israel as a people cocooned the promises of God until the time of fulfillment. And then Christ inherited the identity of Israel and he became the true Israel and embodied all of the promises of God. And now anyone united to him is included in those promises. And so when I say that Jesus <coughs> inherited the identity of Israel, I think that's the point that we're seeing in the Gospels. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus fulfills that in Matthew chapter 2. So not only does Jesus come out of Egypt like Israel, not only does he pass through the waters of baptism, paralleling Israel's passing through the Red Sea, but then he spends 40 days of years in the wilderness to parallel the 40 years in the wilderness. He chooses 12 disciples, then he goes up onto a mountain and gives his law. You see, he is embodying, the, he is becoming, he, has, he is the true Israel. Okay, next thing. The righteousness that Jesus requires. Now the question, the question remains... If Jesus is fulfilling the law, if he's filling all of that up, does that mean that he's done away with God's standards? I mean, if there is a requirement, he keeps it, right? So does he do away with all of God's standards? Is he doing away with righteousness? Well, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The least in the kingdom of heaven, verse 19 is the one who relaxes, relaxes God's standards. A, a book that just blew me away, blew me away when I read it, by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus. And he talks about what, God, what Christ required of his disciples. Very, very wor worth your time. Worth your time to read the gospel according to Jesus because, and, and we've talked about this in excelsis in this church, that grace does not give us a license to live however we want to, right? Grace gives you freedom from sin, right? Doesn't give you a license to sin, it frees you from sin. You relax God's commands, least in the kingdom of heaven. If you do them and teach them, if you do God's commands and teach them, great in the kingdom of heaven. But then here's this shocking rejoinder to this. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, this is shocking because the scribes and the Pharisees were the holy men or thought to be in the first century. These were the ones. They tithed mint and cumin. They, they, they performed the smallest aspects of the law. So to say that their righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and the Sadducees to enter the kingdom of heaven is an amazing statement. But it tells us that something was insufficient about their righteousness, right? There was something wrong. Our righteousness must exceed it, that of the Pharisees. So what was wrong with the righteousness of the Pharisees? What was insufficient about their righteousness? Let's see. I invite you to turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 25. Now, what, what is it about the righteousness of the Pharisees that's inadequate? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but instead they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. So what was insufficient about the righteousness of the Pharisees? It was all external. It was all out here. And it was not, it never passed through the external into the internal, the heart. So a righteousness that exceeds the righteousnesses of, of the Pharisees is a righteousness that goes beyond the mere external and pierces through to the heart. See, for the Pharisees, the law was not a way to live before God, but a way to act in front of God. For the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the law wasn't a guide for holy living. It was a guide for holy looking in front of people. And this, very interesting, this got them street credit with other Jewish people. And so, interestingly enough, following the law for a Pharisee and the Sadducee was a social currency that was used to purchase power and respect among their chosen people. A social currency. Far be it from us, brothers and sisters, far be it from us to use godliness as a means of gain. This is why I was so, my heart sung that we were able to confess our sins to one another at the last men's theological focus group. That's not to say, oh, you sin, I sin, we all sin. You know, that's not to go light on sin. But the, the openness shows us that we're not posturing. We're not a church that tries to posture. 
in front of one another. We're not, we're not a, a people, we're not a membership who come together and just demonstrate our godliness to one another. But with humility, honesty, we are trying to glorify God with our actions, our attitudes, our motivations of the heart. Because external righteousness alone will get one condemned by Jesus. And if our righteousness is all out here, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus. So your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. That is, it must go beyond mere external conformity to God's law, and it must be a righteousness that rises within the heart. So, question, the, que the main question here is, has Jesus come to relax God's standards? By no means. Jesus has rather come to teach a whole person righteousness, both outward and inward. And so you're going to see here in the rest of Matthew 5 how he parses this internal righteousness out. He's going to say that you've not honored God when you're mad with somebody, you've refrained from killing them. Like that's not, <laughs> refraining from homicide is not following the heart of God. Like you, I, I'm glad you didn't murder him, Jesus is going to say, but that's not, that's not the righteousness that Christ requires, that God ever required. The law was always there to facilitate, facilitate a righteousness that went beyond and to the heart. Not just refraining from murder, but not hating your brother is what Jesus required. Not just avoiding adultery, but killing lust in the heart. It only takes a spark, one spark, to start a forest fire. And Jesus was not about just washing out forest fires. He was about eliminating the spark in the human soul. The righteousness he is calling for is conformity to the heart of God. Verse 48, just look at verse 48. What must we be? What does he want? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus did not relax the standards. That sounds a lot like what God always wanted from Israel in Leviticus. Be holy, for I am holy. Be like me, be a reflection of me. And that sounds a lot like in the image of God. He created them. Male and female. He created them. So, please understand, Jesus is not relaxing God's standards. He taught a righteousness from the heart, which the law was meant to promote all along. Well, you say, Pastor, that sounds great. Well, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad we're not hypocrites in this church. I'm glad that Jesus hasn't relaxed the standards, but I am a sinner. 
I, I am intimately aware of my shortcomings and that my life is not perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, what a good place to be in. Someone that's admitting that they are a sinner in need of God's grace. Well, you're in a good position if that's you. Because to, there's so much here. But the two things that are promised to you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Number one, you are justified in Jesus Christ. The word justified means you've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Meaning all of your sin, your inadequacy, the failure of your former lives, your squandering of your life, not living up to your standards, let alone God's standards, although God's standards are the ones that are important. You're, all of that, Christ promises to wash away entirely, to give you a, sleen, a clean state. This is called justification. You've been righteified, made righteous in God's sight, so that what he sees when he looks at you is Christ's righteousness. This can be given to you who have faith in Jesus Christ. And many of us here, I'm looking out, have embraced that message and know that we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The second thing you get, you don't just get forgiveness. And, and you get forgiveness and you are a child of God. And there is a life in the Son. And this means that the tyranny of death need not fear you. Our bodies are wasting away, but death for a Christian, it's just the door. It's just the door. This is all waiting for you in Jesus Christ if you will receive him as your Lord and Savior. Here's what else you get. Here's what else you get. And I know for you Christians, knowledgeable, you know this, but I'm just telling it to you again. You get this Holy Spirit. You know why it's called the Holy Spirit? Because he makes you holy. Not just in declaration, but in actuality. The Holy Spirit, we are taught in the scripture by Jesus Christ and the apostles, enters the human soul. That's why Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. That's the essence of Christianity. It's God's life being imparted, implanted into you. And so God promised through Jeremiah the prophet, I will write their, my laws on their hearts. So how are we to keep even the smallest matters of the law as new covenant Christians? The law has been written on your heart. And how will he do this? How will he write the law in our hearts? Ezekiel explains that to us in the passage Mark read. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So the law written on the heart is given by the Holy Spirit who now indwells the Christian and causes you to walk 
in his statues. This is why if you see re a real Christian, there will be a change. It's not just there must be a change, there will be a change. Have you ever seen Christians, people who were living a life of debauchery or just indifference to God, they become a Christian, 10 years later they are an entirely different person. Entirely different. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit has entered them. God is now working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're not only justified, theological word for being declared righteous, free of any declaration of sin in God's sight, but you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who actually changes who you are becoming and you will become like Jesus Christ more like Jesus Christ. And what we're after then as Christians, the standard we're after is God himself trying, wanting to reflect his mercy, wanting to reflect his holiness and his love. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit and he gives it, he gives a, a an explanation of what the Holy Spirit does. And he says in verse 3 and 4, the whole, basically the Holy Spirit has entered you in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the very kinds of words that Jesus is using here, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, I leave you with that today. The three things we talked about, number one, please remember that the basis for your confidence in Scripture is Christ himself. We don't just find ourselves believing a Bible randomly. Christ claimed to be the one fulfilling these Scriptures and taught and believed that they were the word of God. Christ not only believed they were the word of God, but claimed to be the one fulfilling them, bringing them to their completion, becoming the sacrifice that God required. He brings them to their completion. And if somebody claims that and then rises from the dead, he's someone worth listening to. And lastly, the righteousness that God requires, here's the good news. What God requires from you, he has provided to you. He requires righteousness from you? Righteous, declared righteous in God's sight. He requires that you walk in his statutes and his commands. The Holy Spirit given to you. Everything for life and death has been given to you in Jesus Christ. If you will receive him, bow the knee, repent, and believe in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And then completely reorient your life around him. This is the call to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.